it's the gut and the insights with data that really have the impact. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 44, and today's guest is Jamie Goodfriend, an accomplished marketer and strategic advisor. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Goodfriend. Jamie is an accomplished executive with significant experience applying data and insights to inform marketing strategies, product development, and digital transformation. Jamie's current activities include her role as a board member for Tubular Labs, the leading measurement and analytics solution for social video, and as a strategic advisor for programmatic video game advertising platform, Anzu. Previously, she served as the global chief marketing officer for MGA Entertainment, the largest privately held toy company comprised of LOL Surprise and Little Tykes. Helping brands benefit from emerging technology has long been a passion for Jamie. A pioneer who quickly understood the internet's power as a marketing channel, Jamie helped launch Prodigy as the first internet-based online network. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hello, Mark. Happy to be here. Well, thanks very much for uh, doing this. We're recording uh, in the middle of September. Uh, we are hopefully moving through the pandemic. Different parts of the country, it's uh, you know still problematic. How are you and your family doing? We were great. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, September is also the beginning of football season. So it's it's a good time of year, no matter what's going on in the health situation. So lots of football watching these days. Yeah. And I, I know we I, we learned that you and I have a, a common team, uh, the New York Giants. And uh, although this is only audio, I made sure that uh, while we were recording <laughs> this, I went and got my uh, Giants hat, one of the years when they were good, and uh, shared it with Jamie. They're always good. We can't be fair weather fans. This just tests our commitment. This is testing my commitment, I have to admit. And we still have more championships than the Patriots. That's all that matters. <laughs> that, that's good. Usually when we uh, start the show, uh, I'd like to get something, you know, a little background, maybe something that you feel makes you a bit remarkable, you know, something in your career that stands out. Being so early in the quote unquote internet is something that really at the time I didn't understand was so unusual, but I had been fascinated with uh, the internet as and it was really wonky. This was before browsers. This was before it was very consumer friendly. And uh, I had an opportunity at one point to go work for Kathy Kennedy. And she had just left Steven Spielberg and started Kennedy Marshall. And my job was to do a number of different things in marketing, but I also helped build websites. And as a result of that, I got somewhat savvy but I was able to meet a lot of the early players uh, in the digital space, including Prodigy, which at that time, and I'm totally dating myself, 
was before AOL. It was the biggest online network. But in those days, it was a walled garden. We didn't call it that, but it was a walled garden. And I was part of the team that helped launch it onto the internet. You know, those were the days of 14.4 dial-up. It was uh, a fascinating. You still have those. Do you remember those uh, cards? You were probably a child, but it was, you know, you got 30 free hours. Uh, but no, it was a really wild, wild west kind of time in, in the world, especially in the digital space. And in LA, uh, there was a, a lot of fascination and a lot of interest and enthusiasm for what content could look like, what the business models could be. And I, and I feel really grateful that I was part of that, those, those early, early days. That's interesting. So, you know, I did have a question about Prodigy. So maybe I'll just jump to that one now. You know, we sometimes take jobs because we know that they fit this grand plan that we have. You know, they're stepping stones to other things. But since Prodigy was this new thing, you know, about the internet, how did that, you know, kind of play into your mindset? Did you take it because it just sounded cool? Or did you really have some vision that, you know, it was the beginning of this digital age? I can't really say that I had vision or grand plan. I just was fascinated and I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. I did have a background in advertising and marketing at that point. So I had worked with a number of different brands and I wanted to learn more because it was such a new territory. I mean, there were no rules. There was no there was nobody that knew any more than any of us. So I felt like it was an opportunity to really get in early. And if anything, it was uh, opportunistic and fun. And in those days, I mean, this is the early nineties. It was so much fun because no one was really in it for the money. There was no money. It wasn't. So the people that were in it were like-minded travelers and, you know, were very curious and were very entrepreneurial as it turns out. So that it, it was, there's no grand plan there. And there was no money, I suppose, because there really was nothing to monetize at that point, right? People weren't, you know, advertisers, users weren't coming to necessarily to Prodigy to say, we want to do something with you. And, you know, how was Prodigy generating any revenue in those days? Well, it was primarily subscription. You had a monthly, you know, just uh, remember like, well, I can't even remember what it was. And then they started to do some, some brand activations and we did do sponsorships with celebrity chats and those kind of things. But as part of that, I did also get to meet an enormous cross-section of people um, in media and entertainment and whatever was technology at the time. And I was lucky and also met people from Microsoft. And Microsoft did have, at the time for MSN, a plan for how to monetize. And I was able to join that team. And in the beginning, it was about creating content. And they had a channel structure, uh, which was kind of fun. But I quickly realized that at Microsoft, if you were spending money, you were a lot more vulnerable. So I switched over to uh, BizDev. And one of the areas, the things that, I, that was interesting early on was we, we did an upfront deal with Universal uh, pictures to do uh, an advertising media deal and upfront. And there's this brilliant woman named Anthony Price, who was, she was really a visionary. She's at Disney now. And she agreed to do this quite a significant deal. And I will tell you, I got an email from 
Bill Gates and my grandmother to this day, you know, that was like the proudest moment of her life. Forget that I did anything. It was just that I had gotten an email from Bill Gates. But anyway, that's that's one of my war stories. One of the threads throughout your career has been some really great brands. You know, you talk about Prodigy, you talk about Microsoft. Uh, we'll talk about some of the others in a bit. How do you describe yourself? You know, are you a branding person? Are you a data person? You know, is it, are you customer insights focused? Is it just this compendium of everything together? I, oh, that's an excellent question. I am a consumer person. I, I follow the consumers. I follow people. And usually it's younger people. And that's always been the thread. I want to know why. Why are you doing that? Why does that work? You know, why do you want to be associated with this brand or this project? But finding, I no matter what I do, whether I, I started in PR, it's really understanding the story and the motivation and the context of how consumers, customers, people uh, are, you know, buying things, how they entertain, whether they want to be entertained. And if you, and I always find that if you stick with the, the, the people part of it, the rest of it is a lot more understandable and accessible. If you look, watch and observe people and younger people, it's endlessly fascinating. You can never get bored or you can never be irrelevant. You, we talked about the balance between you know branding and and storytelling, and then there's the pretty picture you know component. But you you've had a lot of data experience. How how does somebody in in the seats that that you've had use the data and then allow that to kind of inform the decisions that you're making? It also has played to me that you know you've got all this data, and then you still have to use your gut and your experience on how to interpret it. There's a, an interesting formula. I did not make this up. I don't remember where I heard it, but I use it frequently, which is data, gut, data. So data can tell you how much someone's done something, when they did something. It's the gut and the insights with data that really have the impact because there's a big difference between insights and observations. And I find it fascinating that that, that gets confused. Like knowing that a lot of families have Alexa in their home is an observation. Knowing that kids are able to make brand choices and decisions because they have access to Alexa is an insight. There's a big difference. So the data, I'm not a data scientist. I, I rely on the talents of my colleagues. Uh, so it's a symbiotic relationship. But understanding the story behind the data and really being able to translate that into something that has a business-related outcome is the part that gets me so excited and I think has been a bit of a, a secret weapon throughout my entire career. And I really have been lucky that I've gotten to work with some really brilliant analytics uh, experts and data scientists throughout my career. You mentioned the younger consumer. Um, I've seen some things that you've talked about with respect to Gen Z. So maybe describe a little bit, you know, what Gen Z is, you know, where they would be in their age, you know, today perhaps, uh, and how you think, you know, marketing to them is is best done. Oh, this is one of my favorite topics, Mark. Thank you. Uh, well, Gen Z, and look, there are no rules. There's no um, generational marketing rule book. It's not in the Library of Congress. But I would say loosely, Gen Z is under 30, post 9-11, to somewhere, mm, I would say, you know, early 20s, you know, in that, in that range right now. 
And they're the age that they grew up post 9-11, post 2008. Uh, the world was uh, not easy for them uh, in a different way than millennials. So I think if you kind of take a step back, you think, okay, boomers, uh, they were the biggest generation and they had it, boy, did they have it great. They just had it great. But they, when they had kids, those are the millennials, right? So it goes boomers, then Gen X. Gen X was, I'm a Gen X. And, you know, we were the generation of, you know, no seatbelts, no sunblock. You didn't have a play date. <laughs> Gen X, I don't know where, where you fall on the spectrum, but people laugh when I say this is like, if when I graduated college, if I had to move home with my family after college, if I would rather sleep on the street actually than move home with my parents, that was not happening. And then you've got millennials who are the children of boomers. You've got this giant generation and then you've got Gen Z. So Gen Z is more analogous to Gen X. Um, they're much more practical. They were not necessarily, this is not black and white, but they weren't necessarily given a trophy. Uh, they're very realistic, but they are the generation that prefers influencers over celebrities. They're the generation that's not passive. They are active creators. And I think that insight is the most powerful difference uh, about who they are because they know one they know that they need to be financially uh, robust they, they don't expect anybody to take care of them financially so they've been entrepreneurial to some degree from day one because they could because of all the technology because there's access i mean you hear all these stories now of great i love these stories about kids that have Roblox games and then they're making a you know couple hundred thousand dollars a month or kids that are artists in their own right or musicians um, they can sell their own clothes you, you have so much access so they're very entrepreneurial and very independent now again there is no uh, black and white but those are the influences uh, for Gen Z and they're in the workforce now so you've got a multi generational integration or war, battle of the generations going on in workplaces. And maybe that's one of the good things that COVID has done with remote work is that you don't have uh, the clash of generations in the, in the workplace. Let's go from Microsoft. Where did you head to after your, your stint at Microsoft? I was really, again, no plan, got really lucky. Uh, Rich Barton was at Microsoft. He's the founder of Expedia. And in those days it was a CD-ROM and it was, uh, he had this vision of building a travel marketplace, which sounds so simple, but remember it was, you know, early days back then. And I loved working with that team and had this insight and idea of going to Vegas and being able to start to do some business development in Vegas. I'm also like to gamble. So there was a, maybe perhaps a bit of a personal interest in there, uh, but was fortunate and was able to build some relationships with some of the casinos early on. And for example, we did the first sweepstakes that the Mirage ever did as a way of getting email addresses. And I think we got about 25,000 email addresses and we thought we were just the hottest thing going in town. It was fantastic. And you know, it required a lot of travel to Vegas, which in those days was, you know, that was fantastic. But uh, I did work with them quite a bit and then Expedia was the only uh, division to ever IPO out of Microsoft. And I was asked, luckily, thank God, to join. 
and you had to decide if you were going to join Expedia and, and leave Microsoft or stay at Microsoft. And so I joined Expedia and we did an IPO and went public in 99, I believe. And I stayed a short time after uh, and then took a family hiatus. I stepped out of the workforce for, for a short time. I was a parked Ferrari, as my friends used to say. But I did get to work at Expedia and saw it blow up and really go on to be tremendous. And then uh, Rich Barton also founded Zillow. He's incredible. And I, and I may be telling tales, but he's so incredible. But his son was born on the day that the, we went public and he couldn't ring the bell because he was in the hospital having his son. So I just remember that like it was yesterday. Well, that's nice. He set his uh, priorities appropriately. He did. Right? He did. Uh, so, and you also uh, then uh, had a stint at Creative Artist uh, Agency as the Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, there's this, uh, the Cassandra Report. Tell us about that. It was interesting as I was reading about it. Yes. Well, it was founded by a brilliant entrepreneur, Jane Buckingham, recognized that and this was early days of the internet, that big brands didn't really understand younger consumers and didn't really have access to what was going on. And so she founded uh, the Cassandra Report and built a business around it. CAA acquired it. And I worked with Jane for a short time. And when she left the business, had an opportunity to join the business full-time and had an opportunity to work with a, a great team. And we built a consulting business uh, that was based on research and insights and focused on young consumers. There was CAA also has a had a very successful marketing group and we were partnered with them. We did different things, but I worked with uh, proprietary research, quantitative and qualitative, and we were able to help brands not just look at the data. Again, we're coming back to this theme of data, but understand where things were going and why and anticipate shifts in behaviors. And it was uh, like, for example, Victoria's Secret was one of our clients and we were telling them, they listened to a lot of what we said, uh, but we were telling them that women were shifting how they, they looked at the idea of sexy. And uh, it, it, it took them maybe another 10 years to, to agree with us, but I was, we were long gone by then. But we, I like to say we were early in the understanding that women were looking for things in a different way. And, and uh, that was one example. We worked with Microsoft. We worked with Red Bull. We worked with an enormous amount of brands and helped them get closer to consumer behavior. The, the idea behind that was so they would be able to pivot marketing, think about product creation and introduction and innovation for down the road. Was that really what you were trying to help them understand? Yes. Well, if you're a brand, typically you're really good at whatever you're, you're manufacturing candy or sneakers or electronics or whatever your area is. And you need an outside source of cultural insights, what's going on with your consumer, what's going on in the world globally from many different sources. And we served as a opportunity for brands to really broaden their understanding of how people were living to see opportunities. So Elle Magazine was a client and they wanted to understand how to anticipate what was going on with the magazine business and where was fashion going. Uh, Red Bull was trying to, and this was before they had fully pivoted to being an, a content business, 
they wanted to understand where they could play in terms of younger consumers. Was it a sports drink? Was it a lifestyle brand? You know, what were some of the opportunities they should be looking into? You know, I think, again, it always goes back to this through line of consumer behavior. And if you watch consumer behavior, you can see the future. So one of the things that I always point out is for anybody that pays attention to kids playing games, it's not just that gaming is so compelling in terms of the entertainment factor, but it really changes the perspective and the expectations of what players think of in terms of interacting with brands. So for example, in gaming, everything's personalized, right? It's it's a one, it's somewhat of a one-to-one experience. Again, this was AAA console games back in the day, but it was so much more interesting to play a game and have that user experience and the customer journey and the accessibility of being able to personalize things versus think about to this day, how you sign up for healthcare or buy insurance or go to an ATM. And if you look at getting a signing up for a bank account versus playing a video game, it's such a broad, terrible, (laughs) doesn't really stack up. And by understanding what was happening in those behaviors, because people don't think about younger kids as a target, especially if you're, you know, a, a financial company or healthcare, but they grow up pretty quickly and you, you can't pivot your company as fast as you need to. So you really need to see how they're behaving and then apply it to your own business travel. I mean, in those days, again, you know, Amazon really changed the comparisons because if you're a, a sneaker company, you're competing against other sneakers or you're a fashion company, you're competing against other fashions. But when Amazon came in, one of the things that they really did was they changed the competitive landscape because now everybody's competing against Amazon and that customer experience and how easy it is to access what you want and when you want it. When you look at Amazon as a, an arbiter of how you buy things, it doesn't matter what category of, of brand you're in, you have to change your experience. And that was the kind of information that we were helping provide. You've had so much experience in in kids brands and in kids marketing. You know, when I, I've always found it interesting. You know, I watch these commercials, and you know, I, I wonder who is the advertiser really trying to market to. You know, are they advertising to the kid who's the end user of the product? Are they marketing to the adult? You know, perhaps who's going to be the decision maker to buy? How do you think about that when you're in you know working at you know uh, Little Tykes or uh, a, a kids business? It changes and it has changed significantly. The The rule of thumb was always for uh, brands to look for pester power. There's nothing more powerful than a kid's is sitting in frozen for two hours, walking out and I got to have this product. You know, that's, that's just the way it goes. And that pester power, there's nothing more powerful than that. However, the world has shifted. The way families shop is changing drastically. Kids are involved, but you now increasingly have to market not only to kids, but to parents and to gift givers, aunts and uncles, and find a way to reach them in a really crowded marketplace. So it's a little bit of everything. And the the media landscape has shifted so drastically in the last few years where TV was 
such a powerful channel for a long time with every brand. Uh, but especially for kids now, it's, uh, it's a great awareness and, and reach play, but it, there's a challenge because the eyeballs are lessening, which means it's getting more expensive to buy traditional TV spots for less eyeballs. So you, you get too much frequency and YouTube is taking over, TikTok is taking over YouTube and gaming like Roblox is taking over all of it. So you have to be very nimble. And I think the idea of a franchise, the way it used to be was the brand was at the center and it was all the different channels. If you pivot and look at it as the audience, the kid or the parents are in the center and you think about which, the, which channel is the most effective, then you can start to figure out how to prioritize your budget because you can't do everything for every brand all the time. You have to pick your spots. And as it's getting harder and harder to reach kids because it's so fragmented, you have to be really creative and nimble. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Uh, as the global CMO of Wonderman, what was that like? I mean, uh, maybe for the, the folks that don't know Wonderman, tell us what that is, what that agency is, and uh, tell us what your role was. Wonderman, which is now called Wonderman Thompson, is part of WPP, and it was founded by Lester Wonderman way back in the 50s during the Mad Men era, and he he was actually really brilliant. And he figured out the power of personalization and realized that if you got a letter addressed to dear homeowner versus if you got a letter addressed to dear Mark, you're much more likely to open the dear Mark note. And that un opened up and unleashed this powerful channel of going direct to consumer and direct marketing. And he was brilliant at it. And the agency grew and grew and grew and became quite large. Um, and was part of WPP and Mark Reed had come in to run the business. Um, there were about 7,000 people there at the time. And I was there for a few years. And by the time I left, we had merged, become Wonderman Thompson, merging with J. Walter Thompson, brilliant creative agency, also, you know, legacy uh, and a heritage brand. But the focus for Wonderman had been CRM, technology, marketing automation, uh, and Mark, came in and wanted to build the brand to be a bit more current, a bit sexier. We used to talk about sexy data and really turn the business around. So I was very fortunate uh, to work with a, a great global team and help build the story and, and the, the positioning became creatively driven, data inspired, which spoke to the power of having great creative plus data. Uh, it was a, a really great ride and I got I got to work with some really incredible people and I think that was where I was lucky because I was able to trade my marketing skills uh, in exchange for being able to learn about marketing automation and commerce and AI uh, and cloud computing and everything else that I need you know that a modern marketer needs to know. 
Well, you must have uh, read my mind because my next question was going to be about AI. How are you interacting you know, with either companies from an advertising perspective or from uh, companies that are actually developing AI tools to be able to you know, leverage that in your toolbox? It is so powerful, but it's not replacing human creativity. What I, the way I think about AI, uh, and I, I learned a great deal about it. I, I'm going to a little hat tip here to Stefan Pretorius, who's the chief technology officer for WPP. He taught me an enormous amount. So I always like to give people credit. It's about eliminating rote tasks, things that are not worthy of a brilliant creative's time. So when you're looking at whether it's choosing the right imagery, photo, color, size of a piece of creative, uh, figuring out at scale what works versus what works best versus what, what's not working at all because it doesn't have that same kind of traction, that's where AI comes in. And that was where, where I've spent my time trying to implement and leverage AI as a, a way of helping the teams do the smart work, not the, the manual labor that a machine can do. You know, I, I consult now, I you know do mentoring for early stage companies. It's, there's not a day goes by that there's not another AI-based business that comes my way, you know, trying to uh, uh, build a better mousetrap. Well, you're, I mean, you're a commerce expert. Where are you seeing AI come into play as a, as a tool, as something that is not hype, that's, that's, there's real value? Yeah, I, I think you hit it. Um, I think it's, you know, taking away the things that you don't really need the human, you know, to do, um, you know, in you know, a lot of user generated content or simply being able to use the information to uh, communicate to a customer that's bought X that they should be buying Y on the same purchase. Um, you know, there've been tools like that forever, but now being able to, to take some additional uh, information and different technology, the success rate rate of selling that add-on item, the upsell or the cross-sell, uh, you know, has improved dramatically with some of this technology. Um, I think you see it also in customer service related things, you know, the smart capabilities of interacting with chatbots. And, you know, sometimes you can't even tell now uh, the responses are so good. Uh, you can't tell if it's a live agent that's responding to your question or whether it's, uh, you know, technology. It's such a, that's such a good point, the whole customer service, because it's, it's not a profitable, it's, it's expensive to have loads and loads of people. And while I'm not trying to eliminate jobs for people, for a lot of the requests, it does help the consumer have a better experience and it doesn't cost the company that same kind of um, price to deliver a better experience, which is so critical and such area people don't want to invest in sometimes. Yeah, and and I think you know we're we're all call it whether it's you know the Gen Zs or the Millennials or whatever group you know we're talking about. Everybody wants everything quicker, right? You know, Amazon you know thrust upon us. We all want 
uh, we want to order something and we want it, you know, almost immediately. Well, it's the same thing today. You know, either if you're buying something on a website, you don't want to send an email and wait 24 hours for somebody to respond to an email. You either want live chat or you want um, a bot to be able to answer your questions. I'm still amazed at retailers that, you know, when you send an email, they give you an automated reply that says, we'll get back to you within 24 to 48 hours, but I want to buy now. Right. You know, so, uh, so I think customer service is one of those applications. You live out in, in LA. So there's lots of opportunity from a technology perspective. Uh, Where are you spending your time these days uh, from an innovation perspective? You're, you're working with a company as a board member called Tubular. Um, You want to talk about that perhaps? Love to. Uh, Tubular, I've been a client of Tubular, a fan of Tubular and a board member of Tubular for about seven or eight years. uh, And what Tubular allows you to do is they ingest tons of social video across every channel and can help put it into a framework so that you can see what nobody else can see. So for example, one of the things um, as an insight that they were able to identify a few years ago was the amount of video content, social video content that was happening on Twitch in the streaming space that was being produced by female gamers. And it was someone of an of an underlooked, overlooked, underserved audience. Uh, and so a really brilliant executive had this idea, oh my God, if there's this many women streaming on TikTok that are streaming games, well, women wear makeup. So they went to ELF, Eyes, Lip, Space, and gave them, worked with them to help inspire this campaign that ELF went on to build and really take a leadership role and, and be one of the first non-endemic brands uh in gaming for especially for women and so being able to understand those insights and know what's working uh is is really powerful and tubular also helps a brand understand what their audience is watching so if you're let's just say you're a toy brand and you see that arts and crafts is really popular among your audience and i'm talking about parents because you can't obviously look at kids um, arts and crafts is popular. You can see the DIY is popular and fashion is popular. Well, that could give you the inspiration to make smarter content creation decisions so that you're leveraging your budget uh, wisely and you're building something that has a pre-built audience that's already engaged with these topics. So you could do a how to make your best outfit based on a doll fashion. Those kind of things are, are really powerful. For publishers, it allows people to really equate well you can buy this audience on this publisher i won't say any names versus an audience on this publisher and this one's this one actually has a better composition of your audience it's a really incredible incredible tool so i spend a lot of time there uh, i also spend a lot of time with onzu which is a programmatic marketplace uh, in games which has been something that has been discussed for many many years i think they've cracked it uh, because they're not building it so that it's an interruption. They're they're integrating it in a programmatic way so that it's easy for brands to buy the media, but it doesn't ruin the user experience, which is always critical with gamers. Um, I'm also, you'll hear me talk about this, I'm literally obsessed with Roblox and the impact it's having on the marketing world. And I think, you know, people are talking about the metaverse, which is somewhat of a misnomer, but I think gaming in in this creative way where it's not just shooters or role play 
where it's more of a social creative community opportunity, whether that's Fortnite, Minecraft, Roblox, is such an, an eye-opening opportunity and really transforming marketing um, for every age. And I think it's incredible. It reminds me of the early days, just bringing it full circle, it reminds me of the early days of Prodigy and AOL and CompuServe. Uh, you've had uh, quite a lot of uh, experience in, in marketing, lots of different great companies. And you'll appreciate this as we wind down our show. We do this uh, two-minute drill. Ah, uh, yes. I ask you uh, a question, uh, one or two word answers. There are seven of them uh, already. Yep, I'm ready to go. Okay, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? I'm a little obsessed with Telfar. It's a fashion brand. It is killing it in marketing. It just had a really successful show for New York Fashion Week and they just launched Telfar TV. It's a very accessible price-wise and premium brand and their marketing is killer and they really just get their audience. Cool. I'll check that one out. The favorite app on your phone? Roblox. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I knew that was coming after you talked so glowingly about it. I did. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? This is embarrassing, but I'm going to be brutally honest. I shopped on a site called Bev, B-E-V. It's a, it's, a, it's a canned, it's wine in cans. And I love it. I found it during COVID. It's, it's a <laughs> company owned by women. And I started like everybody else. I started to like my glass of wine at night, but I would open a bottle and then feel compelled to, to drink more than I would like to. But I found Bev, which is sugar-free, great delivery, great brand. And I'm a little obsessed with that too. So a little Bev and a little Roblox. That's, you can see how exciting my life is. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Cooking. Wish I could. I really, really wish I could cook more. So does my family. But I'm I'm great with postmates. <laughs> okay, charitable organization that you're passionate about. There's a camp in Vermont called Kiwaden, and it's over 100 years old. And it's a summer camp that I like to call character camp. Um, that has a big scholarship program, and it gets kids from everywhere out of the cities. Uh, and it really is a way that kids build character in the wilds of Vermont, no technology. It's a spectacular, it's spectacular organization. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Breathing underwater. I don't yeah. know why. I've been obsessed with, I, I, I like to scuba dive, but I've been upset. I don't know. I think oh, I, I want to be a mermaid. I don't know. Go <laughs> figure out thing. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? I happen to own or have a megaphone from when I was a cheerleader in high school and I still have my megaphone and I look at that and it's like my rosebud, I guess, in some ways. It just reminds me of a, of a different time and I happen to be so loud. I don't really even need a megaphone, so it's kind of ironic in and of itself, but it's, it's just stayed with me. I've had it for years and it goes with me everywhere and it's, it's pretty iconic in my, in my house. Uh, that's a good story. As we wrap up here, um, oftentimes people want to reach out to the guests that are on the show. So where can people reach out to you on social media? At Jamie Central on Twitter. I was very focused on Twitter for a long time. 
and now I'm back. So at Jamie Central, um, I would be honored if anyone wants to reach out to me or LinkedIn, either one. Okay, that's great. Jamie, really enjoyed this. Uh, you really, uh, no kidding, have a uh, tremendous uh, set of experiences, lots of information. And, you know, the brands that you have worked with and, and helped to drive have been, uh, you know, outstanding. So thank you for spending this time with me and, and with the audience and uh, wish you and the family good health. Thank you. And go Giants. Go Giants. That's go right. A big blue. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been great. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Jamie Goodfriend for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one. Artificial intelligence should be eliminating the rote task that humans have been doing, but do not really need to spend the time on. It'll not eliminate the need for humans and their ability to be creative, but use it to make decisions at scale to grow your business. Number two, what is pester power and how do you use it to your advantage? Jamie spoke about how marketing to kids is executed and she described it as pester power, whereby the kids pester parents to get them something. Even if you're not marketing to kids, you need to find the right message and story to offer up to your consumer that'll resonate with them to purchase your product. And number three, Jamie spoke about data, gut, data. You cannot always let the numbers drive your decisions. The data will tell you what your customers did, but you have to take that information, interpret what it's telling you, and then formulate a plan to use that data to execute your strategies. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.